politicians have ducked uh, reform. This is one of the biggest public policy failures, I think, of our generation. The question is, what do we do about it? Around the globe, there is a lot happening. From the violence in Bolivia and the internet shutdown in Iran to the impeachment inquiry in the US and the ongoing climate emergency. So if you're not in the UK, you may have missed the fact that we're currently in the middle of a general election campaign. Each week between now and polling day itself on the 12th of December, we'll be putting out an election-themed podcast. We're hoping that we can help you to understand what the policies that politicians are proposing will mean for patients and for those working in the health service. This election has been called because of the political deadlock around Brexit, and both the Conservatives and Labour have been keen to focus their campaigns on domestic issues. And among those issues, the NHS has been centre stage. In this podcast, we're going to try to unpick some of the pledges being made and to look at the gap between the promises that politicians are making and the reality for those working in the health service. I'm Tom Moberly, the UK editor of the BMJ. I have with me Gareth Iacobucci, chief reporter on the BMJ, who is here with the details of the pledges the parties are making. And to talk over the details, I'm joined by David Oliver, a consultant in geriatrics and acute general medicine in Berkshire and a BMJ columnist and Hugh Alderwick, Assistant Director of Policy at the Health Foundation. David and Hugh, welcome to the podcast. Hey. I'd like to start by looking at the issue of the NHS's workforce, the simple fact that we don't have enough staff to provide patients with the care they need. Gareth, could you outline for us the scale of the problem that the health service faces on this and say what the parties are offering voters for this? Hi. Um, So I think the overarching numbers are that there are an estimated 100,000 clinical staff vacancies in in, in England. That's estimated by the NHS Confederation. Um, within that, we think there's around 43,000 nurses with, that we're short of and about 10,000 doctors and around 20,000 clerical administra- administrative staff. So it's a huge issue across the board. Um, so far, the parties, um, they seem quite focused on increasing numbers of GPs. Um, so Labour has pledged to increase GP training places um, from 3,500 to 5,000 per year by the year 2023-24, which the party says will create 27 million more appointments. Um, Labour has also pledged to restore the uh, it's pledged one billion to restore the nursing training bursary, which was removed um, under Jeremy Hunt um, when he was health secretary, um, to help recruit more nurses. Um, now the Conservatives have also made a pledge on GP numbers. They've promised um, six thousand more GPs by 2024-25 um, as part of a pledge which they say will provide fifty million more appointments in GP surgeries every year. Um, the breakdown of this is they they say they will provide an extra 500 GP trainees a year by 2021-22. That'll bring the numbers up to 4,000 a year. So it's um, it's it's slightly short of what Labour are offering, but um, GPs have been an area of focus, I think, because previous efforts to recruit more GPs have, have stalled. And so there's a re- renewed focus from both the main parties on this. David, can I come to you first? Um, in terms of those sort of numbers of thousands here, and what, what does that mean day to day on a ward and for patients for those, those vacancies that we're facing? Well, I suppose the first thing to say is even though I'm a hospital doctor, what's happening in primary and community care does affect what happens in hospitals. So if we start with the GPs, 
We have about 6% fewer GPs per thousand of the population now than we did in 2015, which is why there's some mistrust of big pledges to increase the number. And it's important to recognise that um, every person recruited into GP training does not then translate into one full-time equivalent GP, because people will go part-time um, for issues like childcare, work-life balance, portfolio careers. But also, however quickly you recruit people, there's attrition at the other end. Uh, with people taking early retirement due to things like burnouts and the pension tax issue. And although the figures are that about 12% of the NHS workforce are overseas trained, when it comes to general practice, it's nearly one in four GPs are overseas graduates. So the immigration policy and some of the mood music around Brexit uh, makes an impact. Also in community uh, health, we've got about a halving of the number of district nurses over the past 10 years and reductions in the number of learning disability nurses and health visitors. And all of that will impact on the kind of upstream prevention that keeps people out of hospital. When we're talking about hospital, um, we've already mentioned about one in eight nursing vacancies is unfilled. Um, and it's particularly acute areas, um, often for older adults, whether it's emergency medicine, geriatric medicine, that struggle hardest for doctors and nurses. About 40% of consultant physician posts are unfilled at interview, for instance. And all of this has a tangible effect on the pressure for the existing staff then being pushed in to take extra sessions and it's especially pronounced in coastal and rural and remote areas just like general practice is especially hard pressed in areas of urban deprivation so the headline figures don't actually uh, speak to the real uh, deficit in some parts of the country and I think that any meaningful pledges on the workforce yes training more clinicians is important, but it'll take years for them to come through. It also has to be about ethical recruitment from overseas. And crucially, we have to look after our existing people better so they're not um, leaving or choosing to work less than full time. So a range of actions is required. And I'm not sure any of the manifestos have quite the the heft behind them. One thing I, I would um, welcome from both Liberal Democrats and Labour is the plan to restore the nursing bursary because number of applicants for nursing nurse training have dropped off. Mm. And Hugh, in terms of your take on the numbers, do you think that if they delivered on the promises, that would solve the problem? And do you think the parties have a realistic plan for delivering on the kind of numbers they're talking about? So I think the first thing uh, it's important to say is that um, the promises are just promises and something different often plays out in reality. So, you know, look back to 2015, the pledge to fill you know, 5,000 extra GPs by 2020. But what's actually happened is we've gone backwards. We've got fewer fully qualified GPs in post. So what gets said uh, in the manifestos isn't necessarily uh, what gets done. I think that the risk we have now is that without intentional policy action and something different happening, the 100,000 workforce gap that Gareth mentioned could grow to something like 250,000 or more by 2030. So this is a big issue. This is the, the probably the biggest issue facing the NHS more than money uh, at the election. I think what we've seen so far uh, in the manifesto is, is a welcome recognition of the problem. Lots of words written about filling staffing gaps, lots of pledges. I think the worry is um, sometimes a lack of detail about how that's actually going to get turned into people. Oh. Uh, so I think uh, David mentioned a few things that I think need to be need to be explored so recruitment and training obviously but that can take a long time uh, given the length of time people can be in training um, making the NHS a better place to work mm. uh, but also yeah ethical recruitment from overseas in the short term we're 
we need to be getting more staff from uh, other countries. I think we estimate that around 5,000 nurses from overseas every year to 2023. And so there has to be a real drive uh, on uh, international recruitment. So it's not going to be one thing um, that fills workforce mm-hmm. gaps. I think the manifesto so far, so we're still yet to see the Conservatives. Um, but recognise the problem, the challenge is going to be uh, how do we actually make it happen in practice. And that recognition of the problem, I mean, the, the, the big problem is the numbers, workforce, whatever, but that also that, that culture issue around people leaving, it, yeah. it, whether it's a good place to work. It, is there enough recognition of that as well? I think that some of the manifestos do talk about that. I think that it's just also important to think that it's not the NHS. as well. It's just not just the NHS, it's also social care. So I think at the moment, staffing shortages stand at more like 122,000 in adult social care. Um, so it's really acute, particularly in some parts of the country, like in London, where we rely significantly on uh, staff from overseas. So it's not just looking at the health and social care parts of the manifesto. So if you think about staff coming from overseas in social care, uh, it's also what's the migration policy uh, being proposed in the future at the moment? around 90% of staff in adult social care earn below the 30,000 salary threshold that might be needed to obtain a visa after Brexit. Uh, So I think we need to look at NHS uh, workforce issues alongside social care because there's a clear knock-on effect between the two. And Gareth, wider than the the workforce issues we've been looking at, um, it'd be good to talk about the overall funding that the, uh, the parties are promising. Could you talk us through what they're offering and whether they talk about how they might fund some of those sort of overall funding promises? Sure. So the Labour manifesto, which we have received um, today, it pledges to increase health spending by an average of 4.3% a year over the next four years. And they say that this equates to an increase in NHS spending of £26 billion in real terms between now and 2023-24. Um, the Labour has, has made a point of saying that this is outspending the Conservatives' commitment um, by, by £6 billion. Now, the Conservatives' current commitment, which um, uh, has actually been in place for a while, so this, we haven't had their manifesto yet, is um, £20.5 billion over that period by 2023-24. Uh, that equates to a 3.4% increase, although that does only cover the NHS budget in England, whilst Labour's 4.3% covers the Department of Health budget, which also includes things like education and training, um, which which are not part of that NHS budget. Um, so on that, Hugh, first, um, people often talk in, well, the politicians will talk in absolute terms about millions and millions of extra funding over long periods of settlement and actually that will work out as a small proportional increase that maybe match historical increase or will allow the service to just kind of keep up doing what it's doing or matching the increase in demand or whatever. How would you characterise those sort of current funding offers that people are talking about? Will it be enough to do all they're promising or will it be just enough to kind of keep doing and keep a kind of, you know, the wheels rolling for the next few years? So I think it's important to look at the funding uh, pledges in the long term perspective. So throughout the NHS's history, We've seen historically an average of around 4% growth needed every year in spending to keep up with changing health needs, new technology, new treatments. Over the last decade, we've seen much slower growth. Uh, So the pledges to increase spending from both Labour and Lib Dems are welcome after a decade of austerity. Our projections suggest that the health system needs about 4.1% growth in spending over the next few years. And that is just to maintain quality of services, but to also support the improvements out in the long term plan. So Labour would be about the only one that's... So Labour is, is, is actually beating 4.1%, 43 
Um, so that's a good thing. Uh, and that also includes investment in capital, uh, restoring cuts to the public health grant. Lib Dems come close at 3.8%, and we're yet to see what uh, what the Conservatives uh, are pledging. And David, I mean, <clears throat> with that historical mismatch between um, the increase in funding and demand, and the fact that we've we've seen for a long time uh, sort of uh, increased funding not matching the increase um, placed on the what the service is being asked to do, do you think we need to have a much more honest conversation? Do you think politicians, rather than offering all these things and saying we're increasing funding, need to have a more honest conversation about what the NHS can provide with the money we're giving it to do that job. I know, I, I think we do. And one thing you didn't touch on so much was that during the period of the coalition government, from the 2012 spending review, we were only increasing funding about 1.5, 1.6% per annum. So even though we want to get back to historical annual increases, we're now playing catch-up. There's a £6 billion backlog in capital spend, for instance. So that will actually hoover up most of the money that's been pledged on upgrades. There's been significant cuts, sustained cuts to social care budgets, to public health funding, to health education, you know, if we're talking about the, the workforce. So some of that increase is is compensating for that period of austerity. But there's absolutely no question that we have to be more honest with the public about what can realistically be expected from a modern health service. You can have short wait time targets and rapid access you can have high quality, you can have uh, universality, you can have consumer focus, but you can't have all of them at once. And if we just look at wait time targets as one indicator, we failed to hit the key wait time targets for a number of years now across urgent and elective care. So there have to be trade-offs. And it's the same with waiting times to see your own GP. Um, There's been a lot of coverage recently about people coming and using emergency departments, which I wrote about this week. And there's an example of what you can realistically expect in terms of responsive person-centred services. Um, I think we're going to go on and talk about social care, so I'll Mm. I'll return to that theme. Mm. But just you're right in pointing out slow growth over the last decade, but also cuts in wider services that make it more difficult for the NHS to, to to do its job. Um, so even after uh, the recent spending round, local government allocations will still be 77% lower than 2010. Uh, housing community spend, 52% lower. Education spend down by 11%. So there's been cuts to other budgets that impact on health. So in the NHS, we talk about having a decade of austerity. We've had a pretty easy time of it compared to other wider services that impact on health. Mm. And I think that that is a big, big political issue, actually. Just but by analogy, 20,000 new police officers with no investment in the courts or the probation services or the prisons or criminal legal mm. aid. If you um, do the shiny things like new hospital upgrades and you're not investing in healthier communities, health inequalities, the mm. wider determinants of ill health, uh, housing and all of those other contributory factors, which we know to be important, it's it, it potentially is wind, window dressing. Mm. So one, one obvious thing is the cuts in local government funding and public health funding have led to cuts in drug and alcohol services which could help actually on in primary prevention um to reduce mm. service utilization so i think i'm, I'm glad you made that intervention <laughs> and i mean the the nhs seems to be it's much higher profile in the election campaign that we've seen yeah. maybe not historically but uh, I mean, maybe not in the most recent ones but certainly historically it's, it's kind of right up there people rushing to hospitals but they're being photographed in hospitals on wards or whatever and we're not seeing that kind of acknowledgement that a huge proportion of health and care services delivered by uh, community health services by social care 
Gareth, could you talk a bit about what part is offering around at least social care, if not if not community health services? Yeah, sure. So um, we've heard today that the Conservatives, although they haven't published the manifesto, have announced that they're pledging an extra £1 billion per year for social care in England over the next five years. Um, and this is on top of um, an extra £1 billion next year, but it extends this pledge to 2024 25 um, They are calling for a sort of cross-party consensus on this, which we've heard numerous times that, that this is what's required. Um, now, Labour, which is promising free personal care in England for over 65s most in need, um, has yet to sort of respond to this. I think there's a general acknowledgement that um, that it's an issue that has to be tackled, but um, I think at this stage it, it, it's difficult to see sort of full cooperation I mean maybe post-election we, we may get it but um, I'm sure David and uh, Hugh will have some thoughts on this mm, well, David you've written a few times about the, the fact that we don't have a grown up conversation about social yeah. care that, that all the policies get shot down by being called a dementia tax or and they, mm. the slogan gets labelled on it and it gets dropped and you know even now we're talking the Conservatives you know talk about not having to sell your house or whatever rather than talking about the, the kind of real need for us to address this issue and you know for me it feels a bit like Americans not talking about gun law or you know certain countries have these things and for us social care just seems to be the thing we can't have a grown-up conversation about. Well we have a giant historical anomaly um, which is that social care is based on eligibility thresholds it's means tested it's responsibility of local government and it's the one public service really where we don't have risk sharing that if you're unfortunate enough to be very disabled or have dementia, you may be hit by very high costs and other people may have to pay nothing. There have been numerous commissions and reports over the past 30 years setting out perfectly sensible recommendations, but we've lacked the political courage to go through with them. Even the Labour pledge um, to have free personal care is only free personal care for those people who pass the quite high threshold of need to receive home care. It won't include residential costs if you need a nursing or a residential home. Although they have talked about um, a cap on costs so that people aren't completely ruined. The Health Foundation and the King's Fund did some work with focus groups asking people about their understanding of social care and public understanding around the, the means testing the eligibility is low. And I, and I think one thing that's really important to emphasise is the vast majority of personal care is delivered by unpaid carers. There are around 6 million people who are carers for an older relative in the UK. And if you look at things like the State of Caring report, they have a tough time of it with inadequate support. And I don't think I've heard anything from any of the parties that will change that, even though the Care Act of 2014 does give them some um, rights. And I've been talking a lot um, from a policy analysis point of view, but in my day job as a hospital doctor dealing with frail, vulnerable older people, I probably spend as much time with stressed, burnt out, frightened, worried carers, often a good age themselves, as I do with the patients. And social care has to address their needs. The other thing I'd say briefly is the Scottish experience where they did, on devolution, move towards free personal care. Um, they're spending a lot more money on it proportionately, and there's still a lot of rationing by eligibility thresholds. So I don't think any party's proposed a perfect solution. What I am interested in, you may have a better uh, take on this than me, is the Lib Dems are proposing a joint health and social care fund and another commission, which I don't think we need. Um, but Labour are talking about a national care service instead of social care being the responsibility of local government. If that became policy, that would be a sea change to the current uh, postcode lottery. Mm. Hugh, what's your thought? So I think you start out the issues really well. This is... Um, 
adult social care has been in need of fixing for decades. There's been numbers of green papers, consultations, independent reviews, uh, but politicians have ducked uh, reform. This is one of the biggest public policy failures, I think, of our generation. The question is, what do we do about it? Um, as Gareth set out, two of the parties appear to be um, setting out plans for another consultation, another commission. Uh, so the Lib Dems uh, cross-party convention on options, although they say that they would go into those conversations backing at a cap on costs. It sounds like today the Conservative Party, after um, promising a green paper in 2017, couple of years later they've kept on promising delaying it looks like it's delay again and there's going to be no uh, reform option in the manifesto though let's see let's hope there is um, and another commission on the issue so the risk is that the decisions uh, get ducked uh, and delayed meanwhile more and more people go without the care they need uh, spending is down per person over the last decade uh, some providers are on risk of collapse others are going bust uh, and there's a huge burden on uh, unpaid carers, many of which are women. Uh, so there's huge challenges in the sector. Uh, I think the question was, do they go far enough? I think that the Labour Party is the only party so far to come out with a specific policy. Uh, as you set out, this, uh, free personal care is only one bit of social care, mopping and shopping services, also care outside of uh, homes, uh, residential care home costs wouldn't be included, so people would still face high costs. Uh, although the cap is also proposed, though there's not a lot of detail in the manifesto about how that would work or how it'd be funded. Also important to recognise that around half social care costs, uh, adult social care, are working age adults. So free personal care in Labour's manifesto is proposed for older people. Uh, so you know, policy action often gets ignored around social care for working age adults, but they're a huge part of that system that often gets ignored. I, I should draw listeners' attention to an excellent bit of work from the Nuffield Trust where they looked at Germany and Japan, countries with a similar ageing demographic to us about how they put in some sustainable long-term social care solutions with real public engagement. And I think there's a lot, I realise they have different cultural considerations, but I think that's the direction we need to go because at the moment people know who their GP is, they know where the local emergency department is, they've got a notion of what a hospital consultant does, but there's nowhere near the same awareness around social care until it hits you personally right. or hits your family. And I think that's why, for instance, some of the rhetoric is centred around selling properties because it's a tangible way in which it affects people. And I guess in terms of that impact, in 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 the sort of health policy world or talking to doctors we often talk about social care in terms of its impact on the nhs or how failings are meaning you know delaying discharge or things like that but obviously there you're talking about it being this 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 whole um raft of services that that affects people's day-to-day -day lives and and needs funding without us thinking about it within that narrow lens of how it impacts on the yeah, i think it can be quite damaging to think about the need for social care reform because it'll be better for the NHS. I think that we need to invest in social care reform, in, in social care services, because they look after some of the most vulnerable people in society. It's like public health. And people often say, well, what's the return on investment for the NHS? Well, public health interventions are highly cost-effective. We should be investing in them because they keep people healthy. Uh, I think there's a really big risk in health policy discourse language. We talk about, oh, with, you know, cuts to social care are going to pile pressure on the NHS. That may be true, but these are services we should be investing in anyway. And um, so beyond those issues we've talked about, I mean, we've kind of looked at the workforce, the overall funding, and then kind of the social care and wider services. What what would be your sort of, what do you think the big missing things that from either the political discussion or the manifestos themselves at the moment are? What would you like to see people talking much more about that, so that we're not? So they've addressed 
the funding. They've addressed the workforce. I don't think they've gone far enough with the workforce because, as you says, the workforce crisis is the single existential threat to the viability. What there's been very little detail on is around, and I should say, by the way, there's been quite a bit of focus on mental health having more parity with Lib Dems and with um, Labour. But community health services are often forgotten in all this. And if you look, for instance, at delayed transfers of care from hospital, more of them waiting for community rehabilitation in people's own home, access to community care or health, health service continuing healthcare funding. And also we talk a lot about doctors and nurses and there's a bit of an assumption that uh, other workforce groups will do all the role substitution, for instance, in primary care networks. But the allied health professions, uh, paramedics and therapists and so forth, are a big workforce group of their own and they also have workforce challenges and they seem to have been written out. So, and But the third big thing for me is there's a lot of talk in the health policy commentariat about prevention, but we know beyond any doubt that the wider determinants of health across the life course are down to things like wealth inequality, housing, education, diet, exercise, smoking and alcohol. And I would say uh, since the coalition came, government came into power, we've ducked those big decisions for ideological reasons. Everything's down to personal responsibility or genomes. Nobody wants to be too coercive with uh, food and drinks manufacturers or get involved in discussions about pricing policy. And we've put public health function into local government and then slashed local government funding. I do not see meaningful uh, proposals, uh, certainly in the Tory or Lib Dem manifestos, around prevention policy and public health that will reduce ill health and uh, demand in the long term. And Hugh, uh, what for you is missing? So I think sometimes it's the words are there, the emphasis is missing. I think for the NHS and social care, I think the three big issues are workforce, so a credible plan to address staffing gaps in health and social care. Second is the funding uh, and ensuring that funding covers capital investment in you know, buildings, equipment, not just in hospitals, but also in the community, uh, also education and training. And then the third is reform to social care. We've talked a lot about social care, but I think you're right it's the other services outside of the nhs and social care that promote health uh, we've seen uh, long-term improvements in life expectancy and mortality stalling uh, and for under 50s we're falling behind comparable countries it's through uh, reducing poverty reducing health inequalities investing in housing and wider services that we're going to get at those uh, wider improvements in health uh, so I think we need stronger measures uh, to ensure government is held to account for the health of their population we've seen a couple of ideas in the manifestos uh, so the future generations act uh, like we've seen in Wales has been proposed health and all policies type approaches across government uh, so those are the, the right things uh, the question is how you give those policies teeth and make them actually happen um, but I think the sort of the policies with the biggest impact on health in the future are going to be those that are outside the NHS and social care sections of the manifestos that we're all pouring through over the next few days David, Hugh and Gareth thank you so much for that as I said at the start of the podcast we'll be bringing you these election themed podcasts each week between now and election day if you've not yet caught up with last week's, do give that a listen. We talked to Rebecca Rosen, a GP in Greenwich and a senior fellow in health policy at the Nuffield Trust, and Claire Gerardo, who is a GP in Lambeth and a BMA council member, about the policies and pledges around primary care. We'll be discussing a range of other issues around health in the election over the next few weeks. And if you have suggestions for issues you would like us to cover or questions you'd like answers, do get in touch. You can find all the relevant contact details by going to bmj.com slash podcasts. I've been Tom Mobley, the UK editor of the BMJ. Thank you for listening.